It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome back to Traumatize, where we believe trauma is a common thread of the human connection. Here, we focus on untangling the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma. I'm Bridget Stumpf, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Silverberg, who is MVRDC's Deputy Director. Greetings. We are so excited to kick off our Season 2 discussions with a chat with Jen Hamilton. Today, we shine a spotlight on unsung heroes who navigate the hidden places of trauma in our society. Our conversation aims to unveil the cracks for individuals supporting the often overlooked areas of trauma, fostering resiliency, and bolstering each other. Our guest, Jen Hamilton, embodies this spirit as a labor and delivery nurse, but she's not just a nurse. She's a wife, a mother, an amazing content creator who is funny and authentic. On social media, her unfiltered authenticity and humorous tales have attracted a vast following and our attention. Join us as we explore Jen's remarkable journey and her unique insights in this season's topic of vicarious trauma. Together, we'll discover how to construct resiliency and become better pillars of support in the face of trauma, no matter where it presents in our lives. Jen, I found your content on TikTok due to your widely popular series. I think it's Will It Swaddle or Can It Swaddle? Yes. And I was funny and entertaining. And I will say I stayed because I continue and continued to follow you because I found that you embody such wonderful authenticity. You've created a space online where you're able to effectively share the hard moments of your job, the realities of your role and the folks you're working with to support. And you do this in such a genuine and humanizing way. So we would love if you would tell us a little bit about how and why you just started sharing your work on social media. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I think that these conversations are not just like really great conversations to have, but they're so important. And so for me getting started on social media, first of all, I didn't want to download TikTok at all. I held off for a very long time until I was involuntarily made to homeschool my children during the pandemic. And I was just reaching for any sort of dopamine possible. And I had a friend who would like send me videos of like, you know, like TikTok links and stuff, but I didn't have the app. But then I got frustrated in my house and I'm like, okay, fine. I'll look at these silly cat videos or whatever. So I started watching and what I anticipated seeing was like cat videos or chicken videos or just silly pet videos and middle schoolers dancing, which yes, there is that kind of stuff. However, what I started to see as I guess my algorithm was more getting to learn, learn me more was that I was connecting with the patients that I would see uh, in the hospital before they come in, during them coming in, and then after they come in and seeing their experiences and also experiencing the content that they were seeing 
before coming in and getting all their information from. So I saw all this stuff happening and like people coming in with really odd, like maybe birth plans or odd requests that were not evidence-based. And I was like, oh, well, this is where it's coming from. So I thought if no one else is going to say the real deal, I guess I will. So I started talking about nursing, talking about things that aren't easy to talk about. I had decided from early on that I was not going to do kind of like Instagram filter type life where I only put out what I think is pleasant or aesthetically pleasing. I rarely wear makeup. I don't use filters. I'm going to show it kind of how it is. So I started talking about not just, you know, evidence-based information about labor and delivery, but I also started talking about the really harsh realities of what obstetrical care is today and how we have a lot of room to get better and how, honestly, people are leaving with birth trauma. I think it's one in three have birth trauma. And the stories of birth trauma that I was hearing on the internet were not like, oh, I had an emergency C-section or, oh, you know, my uterus ruptured. Of course, those are there. But the birth trauma that I was hearing about was no one listened to me or no one believed me whenever I said that I was in pain or I felt like I had no choices or someone yelled at me or told me to be quiet. Like all of this really, really preventable stuff that I assumed birth trauma came from just like the scary things that happened, but you could have a very normal, I'm gonna put that in quotes, normal birth and still come away with birth trauma just by the way that you're treated. So I was like, this is important. We need to be talking about this. And so I started talking about it. And now I have the opportunity to talk to who I think is one of the most important groups to talk about this with is nurses, because we can be the impetus to so much birth trauma, just by kind of going with the flow of, of obstetrical care. So it's fighting back against that it's our way or the highway kind of thing and really circling in and bringing in the patient into these conversations uh, so that we can prevent that birth trauma. Yeah, I can deeply appreciate everything you're saying. And it's fascinating, Jen. We do in our trauma education a little bit of an overview of some of Dr. Sandra Bloom's work. And she's really taught all of us that when one experiences trauma, it's not just those internal sort of coping strategies. It's actually the way in which people are responding to that experience in the moment that helps shape how traumatic that experience is. So you're exactly right that like the folks that are right there in the moment as this labor is happening are helping that individual determine whether or not this is a, a traumatic experience. It's just kind of a full circle moment for some of the ways that we think about our role and our work. But I'll, I'll just sort of confess here that I am not nearly as cool as Lindsay is. I just got on Instagram this year after like years of promising her that I was going to do it. And it was actually through Lindsay that I learned about you. She shared a video with me where you're essentially explaining promises that you make. This is a concept that we call in our work road mapping, and you kind of co-create with the patient these roadmaps. And this is a technique that is often actually found in trauma-informed approaches, and it's really been found to both mitigate the consequences of trauma, but to also help build resiliency in individuals. 
And so other than you saying rip roaring labor in that video, which I love when you say that, because I very much related to that after being induced three times and having Pitocin for every single one of my labors, rip roaring labor described that experience pretty well. But I was really excited to talk to you about these concepts, this idea that you call to sit in solidarity which is essentially an agreement of action that you make with your patients toward this common interest. And for folks that haven't seen it, we'll kind of put a little highlight in the podcast. But essentially, you're saying that you're going to make six promises to individuals, that you're their advocate, you're going to listen and believe them, that you're going to prioritize their safety, their security, to explain things so that they can make decisions they feel good about, really giving them agency and control protecting their bodily decision-making and autonomy, something we think about deeply in our work, and to promise to not keep secrets from them, to be honest. And I watched this video and was literally like spamming Lindsay, like, how does she know that these are all of the trauma-informed principles? And so I was really excited to just ask, like, I've intersected a lot in the medical setting. I've had some really bad experiences and few very good ones. Where did you learn this as a nurse? Like, what was the impetus behind you having this in depth understanding of how to be trauma informed? So, my very first encounter with someone who was afraid of me because I was a white person in scrubs was a day that I I was just fresh off of orientation. And keep in mind, I had been a nurse for many years prior to this. And so my labor delivery experience was very limited. And up until that point, my focus was on making sure that my charting was good, you know, because labor and delivery is the most litigious area of nursing. So you could, you have up to 18 years to sue. So I had that drilled into my head during orientation, like, okay, if something happens later on down the road, they could come after you. You want to make sure that you're doing what you need to do for your patient, but also making sure the computer knows it. So I had been, I went in, met my patient and I said, hi, I'm Jen. I'm gonna be your nurse today. That was the gist of the whole thing. Okay. And I turned to the computer and I said, okay, I've got a lot of questions to ask you. So I start going through the admission and I see out of the corner of my eye that she is just trembling, just shaking like a leaf. And I'm used to people shaking in labor, but she was an induction. I have not even touched her yet. So I turned to her and I'm like, girl, you good? Like I was, I was shocked. Are you cold? You know? And she said, I'm just so afraid that you're going to kill me. I was shocked. I was really taken back by that. And I was very confused. And instead of sitting in that like defensiveness, I kind of leaned in and said like, okay, like, where is this coming from? And I am embarrassed to say, as a full-grown labor and delivery nurse, she taught me the racist beginnings of gynecological and obstetrical care. I didn't know. I didn't know about this man, James Marion Sims, who experimented on Black women. Didn't know that. And so her experience of absolute terror in the care of a white nurse began to make so much sense. And so instead of feeling that defensiveness of like, how dare you be afraid of me? Like I haven't even done anything to you yet. Like don't, don't paint me with the same brush. No, absolutely paint me with the same brush because this is, this is your experience of 
fear. And I am not someone to be inherently trusted either because I'm wearing scrubs. Like I should not expect that of people. So that was my first experience of like, I don't know everything about what people are coming in with. Like their bags that are packed with their experiences and the trauma that they have come in with. So instead of having to figure that out for every single person, I just began to assume trauma. I just assume that if you're coming in, your bag is packed with some scary stuff. And I will always be safe and caring for my patients because of that. So those six promises were based on, like I can see them in my head, individual patients that I saw coming in with trauma because of those six things. So I, they started off just being like, I promise to be your advocate. That was the first promise that I ever made to anybody. And then I had a patient who was like, I'm just so afraid that you're going to like touch me without asking me. Okay, so now I'm going to pack my suitcase with, I promise that I'm going to protect your bodily and decision-making autonomy. Like this is your, this is your show. I am just here to help you. So each of those promises came from a patient who came in with that fear being packed in their bag. And so I want to help them unpack that before we even begin. So that is the very first conversation that I have with my patients before we get into it. So those promises didn't come from like, oh, I took a class and they said that these are good things to talk about. They came from actual real life patients that I've had. And I feel like I can cover just about every trauma suitcase that comes in with those six promises so that as we're going together in the day and I'm caring for you that I have kind of, this is the word that's coming to my brain is lubricated, but I've lubricated the situation with trauma informed care. We do appreciate a good pun. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I tell my patients too, like even when we're talking about trying to get you into labor with an induction, it's kind of like foreplay. Like if we're foreplaying together, conversations are going to go way better. So you got to be able to have those conversations with your patient before you just get into it with, I mean, it's not normal for someone to come in and be like, Hey, I'm going to stick my hand inside of you. And we, you don't even know my name yet. Like that's mm -hmm. not normal. So I have to be abnormally trauma informed in order to create the best outcomes for my patients. That's so beautiful. You have both like the secret sauce of being like funny and humorous and taking it so seriously. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably very disarming and showing up in a space where like, it is a scary thing, especially if you're giving birth for the first time, or you've had a bad history. And like, having a nurse like you, I think, Everybody deserves a Jen Hamilton, right? I see the comments that people leave on your videos about like, man, I would have loved to have you as my nurse. Like it would have made such a difference. And it's true. And I think it's both of those things, right? Your humor and your commitment to making sure people are cared for. And so I think from that, you know, it seems like this work as a labor and delivery nurse that you experience the, the most beautiful moments of a person or a family's life and sometimes the hardest moments. And so I think what we're really interested in knowing is what is it like to have to carry all of that as the provider? And how do you manage the stress of kind of living in that dichotomy? Yeah, so I went into labor and delivery kind of with those 
rose-colored glasses of like, I get to do happy birthday parties every single day. And this is so great. And everybody is coming in and so excited to have a baby. And all the babies are great. And the first time, and I'm going to put a trigger warning here that I'm going to talk about a little bit of infant loss. The first time that I experienced an infant loss and the first time that I saw a child who was not alive was so jarring to me that I didn't know if I was going to be able to do this, right? But in order to get through that experience, what I decided to do was fully immerse myself in making this the least sucky that I possibly can. Because I can't make it better, but I sure could make it worse. So I'm going to do everything that I can to have this patient leave here feeling respected, cared for, empathized with. Like I want to make sure that they left knowing that I truly loved them as a human being and also loved their baby. So my friends and I at work had decided that we were going to fully immerse ourselves in making our perinatal bereavement program the best that it possibly could be. And so through the help of TikTok and community people in the community, we kind of just had like, if we could do anything for these families, what would it look like? And so we didn't put any, you know, limits on ourselves of saying like, oh, well, if it was under this amount, we kind of just dreamed big and then said, let's just, instead of asking for permission, if we can do this from the hospital, let's just ask for forgiveness, you know? So we got like an Amazon wish list and we threw ourselves into this work of perinatal bereavement, learning as much as we could. And within just a few days, we had like thousands of dollars worth of stuff that were donated Not because we said, oh, the hospital needs this. We said, we need this as personal people to care for these these bereaved families. And so we had it shipped to like our houses and then we donated to the hospital. But seeing all of the, like the Amazon little gift receipts that people sent in saying like, I'm sending this in honor of my son. I'm sending this in honor of my sibling or my grandchild, almost every single one had been impacted themselves by loss. And so I think what that taught me was that I can heal my own self through pouring of myself into these families who are bereaved. So I get through those moments by, yes, having, you know, wonderful happy birthday parties and that fills my cup also. But being able to meet them where they are and be the best nurse that I possibly can be for them in that experience and not just offer them that compassionate care, but to honor their child in a way they will be able to remember forever. So giving them those memory-making things, taking beautiful photos, printing those photos out, making a photo out. Like we try to go all out as much as we possibly can so that they can leave there with packing some things in their suitcase of healing already so that they can be able to process what they've been through. Yeah, I know speaks to Bridget and I a lot. And I think one of the like our missions in life is to talk about the ways in which trauma shows up and impacts everyone, right? It's not this 
thing that's sort of out there that only some people experience. I think so many people are impacted by different types of trauma and more we can talk about it and normalize it. Like we see you, right? The better and more caring of a, hopefully a society we have. And so when I think about, you know, these promises that you're making your patients, what support would or does make it easier for you to keep the promises? When we think about this, maybe from a structural standpoint, or it sounds like you have some really great coworkers, like what are the things that make it easier? So a couple of things come to mind immediately. The first is having staff, because like if you are overburdened with more than you can handle, it makes it very difficult to keep those promises because we may not have the time or the resources to be able to keep those promises. So there is the Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses, AWAN. It's a very long name, but it's basically the Association of Perinatal Nurses. They have staffing standards that should be met by every hospital. And they used to be called staffing guidelines, but no more because they should be standard. And so hospitals adhering to those standards is absolutely imperative for being able to have those promises met. Also, I think it is important that the providers that work with these patients also get trauma-informed care or trauma-informed learning, because there's a lot that don't do that. So It's very hard to keep those promises as a nurse if you have a provider who is very much like my way or the highway. Mm. I saw a video recently of, and you may have seen because I did a video about it, but it was a patient who was wanting a vaginal birth after a cesarean. She got to completely dilated. She pushed for a couple hours and she pushed in all, all sorts of positions that felt good for her body. And she found one that she really liked on her side which is a very normal way to push. And when the provider came in to catch her baby, he said, get on your back. And she said, no, thank you. I'm going to stay on my side. And he said, so you're refusing then? And she's like, no, I'm just choosing to stay on my side where I'm comfortable pushing. And he said, this is labor and delivery, my dear. This is the way that it has to be. Like, it's very hard in that moment as the nurse to advocate for your patient when you have somebody who is acting like a teetotal turd. Um, And he was like going to leave. He was going to leave because she didn't want to deliver on her back, which is absolutely wild. But there still are providers who have this like old school mentality of like, get on your back. I am the boss. You listen to me. And I think that that mentality may retire soon. If you get what I'm saying, I'm hoping that's the gist, like who I see that coming from is typically like somebody who's been in practice for a very, very long Mm -hmm. time and they want to do things how they want to do them. So I think that having staff in order to be able to safely care for this patient, but also having that good teamwork on your unit between providers and nurses. And then I'll also add this, having advocates in the patient's room that are not just the patient. So like a doula, somebody who knows the patient, somebody who's willing to speak up or step in if they don't feel like something is right. I think that those are all very important things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
There's so many things coming up for me. I'm like, how do I share what I'm thinking in a linear way? The first thing I'll share is it's really refreshing to hear you talk about this in a way that I think is unique. And I speak only from my own experience and people in my life. So we found out at 13 weeks that our first daughter had trisomy 18 and we delivered her stillborn in, in my third trimester. And it's such a... um it's a complex experience to think about because I was so lucky, Jen, that like my doctor that had been following us the whole time, like stayed like hours and hours beyond what she should have. And it's just like everyone in that team was so committed to like exactly what you said. Like nobody could take away that that was going to be like one of the hardest moments of our family's life. Sorry, I'm going to get all emotional, but please, please cry. It's fine. You know, they did everything they could to like not make it any harder. And it was just like, in a almost like counterintuitive way, one of the hardest and most beautiful like experiences that I've ever had because of the people who happened to be in it with me. And, you know, actually, ironically had a friend who also lost her baby unexpectedly at 30 weeks. And I sat with her through that. And having known that feeling, it was quite an experience to sort of see someone not have the same support in the room that I had. And I think one made me even more grateful, but I recognized how rare that was and what you're creating, I think is such just an important, um, so many families, as you said, go through this. And unfortunately, we're often told not to talk about it, right? Like society's response to these moments is to sort of keep them to yourself and keep that bag, as you described, packed away, because it's hard for everyone if we have to look at what's inside. And so your willingness to share and to also like invest your time and energy and making that a better experience for families is deeply meaningful to me personally. But I also really hear what you're saying about the sort of upstream work we have to do. So I think about this in the legal context, right? Like as a lawyer and a leader, we were not taught to be trauma-informed. We were actually taught the opposite. We were taught like the doctor who didn't want your patient on her back, that you have to know the answers, you have to be in control, and you're not creating a sort of like power with the, the client or the patient. You're having power over the situation. And so you know, there's a lot, I think, to be done in the health sector and in the legal sector and other spaces to co-create that power with the people we are working on behalf of. And I, I love to hear you sort of thinking about that, you know, from this lens of of how it's impacting the providers, the nurses, support staff, everyone in this this sort of health ecosystem. We know that like when we show up tired and hungry, we're not going to be our best selves. And you talked about having the necessary staff, the necessary support I'm curious, like from a kind of broader ecosystem beyond those day-to-day resources that you need to do your job in a trauma-informed way, is there something that you think we could improve, we could do to improve the entire ecosystem, right? Maybe it's before they even get into that labor and delivery room. Like what could we do to think about reorienting the entire healthcare system to a more trauma-informed experience? I think that it first has to start in our schooling. Because like I said, me finding out about the racist beginnings of gynecology, like, why didn't I know that? Why didn't that come from school? And I am embarrassed that that like, as a nurse caring for black people, how could I not have known this already? So I think that it starts with having trauma informed care lessons in 
in school, whether it's in med school or nursing school or any other type of healthcare career, I think that having trauma-informed care be a part of how we just show up as care providers is almost, if not more important than the medical care that we provide. Because I think that having that trauma-informed care where we're creating that environment of rapport and trust and open communication, not only does it, yes, allow the patient to feel safer, but they also feel safer providing information that may be very, very important to their medical care. So if I don't have this trusting relationship with you, you may forego telling me something that I really mean something important for you medically. So I think the groundwork of us as a collective healthcare ecosystem has to start before we even practice as healthcare providers so that we can get there. But whenever it comes to like these people that have been nurses or doctors for a while, obviously we're not going back to school, but I think that we should have required trauma-informed care training so that we are actively immersing ourselves in conversations about this because it's really easy to ignore. I'll tell you that right now because it's so easy to show up to work, go in, bada bing, bada boom, just do the, the bare minimum stuff that needs to happen. And that is how we will continue to perpetuate birth trauma is by ignoring it, not talking about it. And I'm just gonna be honest, it seems easier to a healthcare provider to ignore the trauma that patients may come in with because you know it puts an emotional toll on the person if they're taking care of somebody with trauma of course right so if we ignore it you know like oh i don't even have to think about that of course it might be easier but i want to tell people that your care of your patient will go so much smoother if you begin to unpack their trauma bag when they get in let's move in together this is your new home for at least a few hours. Let me help you get cozy. Let's talk about the things that I'm going to do to make sure that you feel cozy. We talk about that all the time, that being a trauma-informed provider in any sort of world and ecosystem is actually harder, right? It takes more time. There's so much more. It's more, it's more of an impact on you as the actual provider. But you're right, it is a lot easier to just ignore it. But to your point, we always we talk about this in the context of survivors of violence, the more that we care for a person and show up and sort of, as we call it, like map to their psychological safety, the better we're able as a team to achieve whatever their goals are. And so I feel like you're just totally speaking our language. But to that point about dealing with, as a trauma informed care provider, What do you do to cope with the stress? I only work two days a week. (laughs) I mean, just being real. Not that's that's kind of funny, (laughs) but I, it's a lot, you know, I take on a lot as somebody who really cares about my patient's mental state at all times. And I think that I know the threshold at which I have to show up my best self, right? So coming from where I was, which was I was the assistant director of an emergency department, okay? So it was a lot. It was a lot of stress. I was not showing up my best self. And my husband can attest to that. He said, you were mean. (laughs) So I could feel that threshold. 
And I was like, I need to find something, A, that is more fulfilling to me emotionally. Because in the emergency department, it's very hard to make a difference in a way that is really going to be impactful that per- for that person to where they're not so angry. Because most a lot of people who come to the emergency are very, very angry. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter how many warm blankets I brought you, you're still going to be mad about something. So I find that I get called the B word way less on labor <laughs> delivery. <laughs> so um, I needed to find an area of nursing that could fulfill me a little bit better emotionally. But also I knew that I needed to take a step back schedule wise so that when I go to sleep on Friday nights, I am excited because on Saturdays and Sundays, I get to be that person that I love to be. I love to be the kind of person who walks into a room and you may be terrified of me, but maybe in a few minutes, we're going to be friends together. So I love being that person and I want to continue showing up being that person. And I wish that I had the emotional capacity to do it every single day, but I choose to do it two days a week because I know that I'm going to show up as my best self. That's amazing. And there's a lot of research about shorter work weeks and less working hours. So you're just, you know, living what works for you. And that's, that's perfect. Yeah. And my children do not understand this at all. First of all, they want me to be home seven days a week, right? But the fact that they have to go to school five days a week, awful, awful for them. (laughs) They were crying on the way to school today. Why why do we have to do this? You're a mean mom. You're a mean mom for making us. You only go to work two days a week. I said, well, well, you grow up and you get a job that you can work two days a week. Yeah, you're like, I can only change one system at a time. Let's, you know, you're working on one. You can't change the schooling system. I also choose to work the weekends because no one else wants to work the weekends. So Mm -hmm. you get paid more on the weekends. So I, it kind of like washes out missing that because normal nursing schedule is three days a week, 12 hour shifts. So I do two days a week, 12 hour shifts, but I do get a little bit of bump in pay because I work when nobody else wants to work. So. Well, um, modeling good behavior for your kids, right? Make the life you want to have and uh, find the balance. It was interesting when I was hearing you describe your sort of experience with the emergency room versus what you do now. And we know that healthcare providers actually face the second highest rate of violence in the workplace of any profession. So I know you were bringing some levity to it with like how many times you're getting called the B word. But in reality, like it is a hard job from the perspective that health providers are often the place where patients who have lots going on in their life, not just the medical issue that brought them in front of you, are going to sort of displace that that discomfort, often projecting it onto the providers themselves. And it can just be really hard. And so I appreciate that you kind of acknowledge that. And I'm curious as we get ready to sort of close out our conversation with you, you know, Jen, we often ask this magic wand question And what we're really interested in is like, if you had that magic wand in your hand, in addition to giving your kids like three day school weeks, you know, like, what would you want the public to know and understand about your work? Like, what could everyone else know that coming into it would make your job easier, more fulfilling? What do we need to know to better support the work you're doing? That is such a sweet question. But my magic wand would be that you don't need to know anything extra about coming in because that is our job. And we should be showing up as the ones who have packed our suitcases with all the tools 
that you need to be able to have the most compassionate experience possible. So my magic wand would be that you don't even need to ask that question. Lindsay, anything you want to say? Like as we hear, I know this was Lindsay's like dream conversation. So I definitely want to open it up to you. I just want to take the opportunity to thank you. This has been so incredible. And I know that you sometimes, I'm sure that sharing content is hard, that you get some negative feedback, but like you make such a real difference, not only for the patients that you see, but just like in the world in terms of what you're talking about and what you're sharing. And that's a really probably hard spot to be in sometimes. And so I'm just incredibly grateful for your time here, but also all that you're doing on social media. Well, I so, so appreciate it. And yeah, sometimes, you know, does get a little hard, but then, you know, I have conversations with people like you guys, and then it makes me just so grateful that I can even be in this space to meet incredible people like you guys and talk about really, really important things. So. Well, thank you. I love that you can talk about it and just normalize what so many of us, I think, often feel like is unsaid. So with that, we are incredibly grateful that you were able to join us today. And thank you to all of our listeners who are also joining us for season two of Traumatize. As you listen to season two, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Traumatize podcast wherever you listen. We can't thank you enough for being on this journey with us. And we hope you will join us for another episode of More Untangling. Be well. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.